Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50% to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to Histories of the Unexpected, the show in which we demonstrate that everything, simply everything you could possibly think of, has its own history, like saddles, pistols, and of course, the Wild West. Now, Sam, there's a clue there, in there, somewhere, somewhere <laughs> hidden in there, about the inspiration for this week's podcast. However, for the moment, we will be simply following the links in our minds as we come across them, explaining how those histories link together in unexpected ways. Who knew, for example, Sam, who knew that the history of chaos is in fact all about the Cultural Revolution in China. It's about the science of unpredictability. It's about the withdrawal from Afghanistan. It's about lawless hours and days, social anarchy and the lords of misrule. Who knew? Or who knew that the history of switches is in fact all about cheating death? It is. It's all about cheating death. Switching on Christmas lights, the history of celebrity, the nuclear button via World War II and the Cuban Missile Crisis. All such important history for you there. Uh, the Lords of Misrule, James, I particularly remember being a very good one. You're all probably wondering who this person is telling you all of this wonderful information. Let me just say of my fellow presenter that if history was bad and ugly, he would be good in his intentions to tell the world about the past. Or perhaps even better, if history was good, he would be the bad and ugly cowboy of research, labouring under the hot noon sun of the library. If history was Butch, he would be Sundance, the history kid, enriching us all with the fistfuls of historical dollars we can spend in the present. That was very good. He is Professor Extraordinaire of Early Modern British History at Plymouth University. He's James Daybell. Hello, James. Hello, Sam. You've had fun writing that, haven't you? I could <laughs> I tell. Know, I did, I did. Uh, we're, on, we're on a similar wavelength because you may well be wondering, who is that unattributed voice so ably helping Daybell co-pilot this very episode? Well, let's just say that if he were a cowboy-related historian, he'd only be the man with no name, a.k.a. the Clint Eastwood of the history world. So steely is his nerve in the face of an overwhelming historical quest. So cold and calculating is he in dispensing justice to historical bad guys of yesteryear. So quick-fingered is he in the gunslinging arena that is modern-day historiographical debate. So cool, iconic and dude-like is he as he rides off into the historical sunset, having righted the wrongs of the past. Yes, you've guessed it. It's the famous historical adventurer, Dr. Sam Yeehaw Willis. <laughs> well, that's it. That's the end of the podcast. Yes, I think you've goodbye. Been massively, we've impressed you all there. Uh, if you haven't worked it out yet, guys, we're doing Cowboys. Very excited to do so and have been both inspired to do so by the fabulous new Netflix film, The Harder They Fall. So I think that before we start exploring exploring um, the idea of cowboys and how it helped us think about the past in new and interesting ways, we should hear a little bit about the film. So let me hand over to our histories of the unexpected resident film critic, James Daybell. <laughs> Sam, that's wonderful. This was a terrific film. Uh, 
The Harder They Fall by James Samuel uh, is a it's a western, but it's a western with a difference. It is a western that has an entirely black cast, and I thought this was an absolute. An absolute tour de force. The, the whole thing is a revenge western. So you see the outlaw, Nat Love, played by Jonathan Majors, who discovers that his enemy, played by the brilliant Idris Elba, who I absolutely love, uh, is being released from prison. And so basically Nat Love reunites his gang to track down Rufus Buck, who also has his own gang, and they seek revenge. Now, this is in... On limited release in cinemas, it's out on Netflix on the third of November. So, and it's well worth it's well worth a watch. I thought it was stunning cinematography, uber stylish, strong characterization. There are all the sort of big ticket items of, of that you'd expect from westerns: trains, landscapes, big skies. It's a sort of homage to the spaghetti western. So there are echoes of classic movies like Django. The title itself, I think, is a respectful nod to the 1972 Jamaican modern western starring Jimmy Cliff, which is the the harder they come. And several characters in this film have names of legendary real-life cowboys and cowgirls. It's also Tarantino-esque in many of the echoes that it has to films like Kill Bill, Django Unchained, but maybe these are drawing on these earlier influences. It's a revenge narrative, which I think is really interesting. It's also got an almost entirely black cast. And it reminded me of Spike Lee's recent film, The Five Bloods, which is also on Netflix, which is a black Vietnam movie. Or that fantastic movie, Glory, which was all about the 54th Massachusetts Infantry Regiment, the Union Army's first African-American regiment in the American Civil War, which had brilliant performances by Morgan Freeman, Denzel Washington, and Denzel Washington won an Oscar for the Best Supporting Actor role. It's also got a stunning soundtrack, uh, an entirely sort of black music soundtrack from rap and hip-hop, reggae, slave chants, scat singing, gospel choir, funk, musical, ballads, a cappella, even whistling, Motown and cowboy songs. So it's a real celebration of black music. Looking at the credits at the end, it also has an extraordinarily long stunt cast uh, because it is full of action. It's action-packed and it has a roll call of amazing actors. I've already mentioned Idris Elba. Uh, who just sort of burns off the screen. But also another of my favourite actors, Delroy Lindo, who I remember so well from Spike Lee's film Clockers, uh, which is an extraordinary movie if you've never seen it. And, and Lindo as as the marshal is absolutely stunning uh, in this. In terms of pr- projecting or presenting uh, the Black Wild West, I think it's a, this is something that is recovering an important history of the past and that's something that I want to explore later on in the podcast but I also think putting it on film is really important and it echoes uh, Public Enemy's song Burn Hollywood Burn which if any of you have seen the have listened to the Fear of a Black Planet uh, album will know all about that and it's basically about it's a rejection of tokenistic uh, black characters in Hollywood movies and the need to actually you know have 
black Hollywood movies. And I think that's something that's that's really important and really comes across here. The other thing that I'd just like to end on is the strong female characters. Now, it's often a feminist test of a movie that if it is a feminist movie, if it actually treats female characters seriously, you have to have at least three female characters whose names you know. And there are three really strong female characters in here who are part of the the different gangs. Treacherous Trudy and stagecoach Mary Fielding being being two uh, such characters who play a really sort of wonderful uh, part here. Um, and most of the time we think about the, the Wild West as, as basically white and male. And I think what this film does is it adds really important correctives. Not only the, the sort of African-American um, representation in the Wild West, but also the role that women played. So on, on the whole, I thought this was an outstanding film, Sam, uh, in so many ways. So well shot, great soundtrack, well acted you know, a really, really enjoyable movie. And if you like, yeah. if you like films, if you like Tarantino, if you like Idris Elba, if you like all of those kinds of things, if you like Spike Lee movies, this is something absolutely for you. Yeah, it was very clever. And um, I, I kept on watching it saying, I was watching it with my son and every time uh, there was another kind of cool setup, I was like, oh, that's a really cool shot. That was really, really clever. Yeah. And it made me think about all sorts of things. Like my wonderful shot of them um, uh, having a standoff in Redwood, Redwood, Redwood City. Redwood Town, yep. and um, it was shot from above, and you could see the length of their shadows. Basically, their shadows were longer than the people that were standing up. And without telling you what was going on, it was pretty clear that it was uh, it was it was the noonday sun which was casting those shadows. Uh, fascinating. I particularly liked Delroy Lindo as well, um, and he he raises an interesting point actually, um, as does uh, you know the, the main characters. But right at the beginning of the film, uh, they say you know although the story has been invented, these people actually existed. And it firmly has one foot in the past, this film. Um, and it is based on, um, you know, a, a decent amount of research. And they, 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 are, they are not completely invented people. Delroy Lindo, in particularly, he um, he's, uh, plays the, uh, the marshal, the, the sheriff. I, f I forget his exact rank now, but he, he's a law enforcement officer. And um, uh, he plays Bass Reeves. And Bass Reeves was the first black deputy U.S. Marshal west of the Mississippi, who was um, renowned for 3,000 arrests of dangerous criminals. And he shot and killed 14 of them, allegedly, in self-defence. Um, and a, a pretty terrifying man. And James, he actually reminded me a bit of the child catcher in Chitty Chitty Bang Bang, because <laughs> he, he has the most sinister horse-drawn prison like like a, a little a little cage um, which he tows behind his horse, which is just what happens with the child catcher in Chitty Chitty Bang Bang, um, but um, a, a bit a bit more more realistic and violent than that. Um, very very impressive stuff. So um, as you said, it it's I mean essentially what we're doing here is shining a light on the African American cowboy in the Western frontier in the late nineteenth century. That's um, it, it's a it's been an important um, but small. Um, hopefully it will grow, uh, um, area of historical inquiry. And I, I think the main point here is that um, histories of the Wild West seldom mention the large number of blacks who left the South, not for the North, as many people might suspect, because this is all tied up in the Civil War. Um, there's very, uh, a very key scene in the film where um, 
uh, there's a confrontation between one of the gangs and some Civil War soldiers. So it's a real reminder of the, the broader, con- broader uh, narrative of what's going on in America. But the point here is it's not just about blacks leaving the South and heading to the North because the North were, were fighting against slavery. It's about all of those who, who left the South and headed to the West. Um, and I think one of the other interesting things with the, the scale of the, the number of black cast, it made you realise that it, actually it's not just about the black cowboys because you, you've got a huge amount of people who are moving to the West, not just to be cowboys. They became miners, farmers, soldiers, housewives, uh, publishers, hotel owners, restaurateurs, barbers, politicians, whatever it might be. Um, so there's a, there is a much b- b- broader... Um, subject going on here which is definitely um, definitely uh, focused on by the film James yeah yeah absolutely and I I think that idea of the historical research that's sort of woven through this is really important I mean the reviews that I read um, about James Samuel himself is that he grew up watching cowboy movies as, as as I did as well I used to watch them every Saturday afternoon with my father and remembered all of those John Wayne westerns and they were overwhelmingly white you know and so in a sense Hollywood has presented a particular myth about the wild west and one of the things that James Samuel wanted to do was actually produce a black western and what he's done as you've said is stitch together this these sort of historical characters that come from across across time and across across periods and brought them all together and there are some there are some real live historical accounts that survive from them and one of the main characters Nat Love has written a memoir that survives which is extraordinary Uh, and this is somebody who grew up as a slave and then managed to spend quite a bit of time you know acting as a as a cowboy and I just want to read you some extracts from his from his uh, memoir, if I can here. So he's written in 1907 uh, an autobiography, uh, which basically recount stories of his life on the on the frontier. And there are all sorts of all sorts of things here. He describes uh, in one of the chapters a wild Mustang hunt. He describes being attacked by Native Americans. They go off with the with the food wagon and kidnap the cook for example. But then one of the most interesting passages that I came across was that he is, he's not there at the Battle of Little Bighorn, but he is in the region of it. And he hears all about one of the most famous uh, battles of the Wild West, Custer's Last Stand, where they are wiped out by the combined forces of the the Sioux, the Cheyenne and the Apache Indians. So the the 7th Cavalry Regiment, um, and this is in in June uh, 1876. And I just want to read you a little extract of this here. Um, so he talks about, We'd not been on the trail long before we met other outfits who told us that General Custer was out after the Indians and that a big fight was expected when the 7th U.S. Cavalry General Custer's command met the Crow tribe and other Indians under the leadership of Sitting Bull, Rain in the Face, Old Chief Joseph and other chiefs of lesser prominence who had for a long time been terrorising the settlers of that section and defying the government. 
As we proceeded on our journey, it became evident to us that we were only a short distance behind the soldiers, when finally the Indians and soldiers met in the memorable battle, or rather massacre, in the Little Bighorn Basin on the Little Bighorn River in northern Wyoming. We were only two days behind them, or within 60 miles, but we did not know that at the time, or we would have gone to Custer's assistance. We did not know of the fight or outcome until several days after it was over. It was freely claimed at the time by cattlemen who were in a position to know, and with whom I talked, that if Reno had gone to Custer's aid, as he promised to do, Custer would not have lost his entire command and his life. So there we are, Sam. There is a, a sort of a window, a spotlight, uh, on a very sort of well-known historical event uh, in the history of the Wild West from the perspective of Nat Love, who is uh, an African-American cowboy and one of the main characters in the film. Yeah, um, and do you know what? I, what I really liked about the film also was you get a very clear sense that they're so, they're, these people are temporary cowboys so right at the beginning you see a kind of a, the prehistory of what what what's what's going on um and it, it really is a reminder that being a cowboy was not by any stretch of the imagination necessarily the only thing that defined these people very often they might start off being cowboys at a certain stage in adulthood um so you've got the whole kind of their, their childhood to get through and after that many of them became store clerks farmers railroad employees cooks uh, or worked in any number of um of industries and that i love that idea of the you know each each and every cowboy having a different biography a different personal history um so you need to be careful when you're thinking about about cowboys um and and you, do, you don't kind of group them all into one i suppose that's the the more more general point that's being made by the film so yes we got it wrong thinking that everyone the cowboys were white um now we know that there were so many more uh, african-american cowboys but but also even within uh, black cowboys or white cowboys everyone kind of ended up working there for a different reason they had a different experience of the Wild West. And one, I found a, a wonderful story of um, from Nat Love's biography as well. It's when he, he first gets drunk when he's a kid. <laughs> it was fantastic. Um, I thought this was important because alcohol plays quite an important part in the film, as it does with all Westerns. Um, so that they've <laughs> someone's lost a demijohn full of strong liquor and the kids go out and find it. It was several days later, while passing through the garden, that we ran across the lost demijohn. It did not take us long to discover that its contents suited our tastes. Sally and Jordan dragged it into a sweet corn patch, where we were safe from observation. An oyster can was secured to serve as a glass, and the way we attacked that wine was a caution to the temperance workers. And I can assure you we enjoyed ourselves for a while. But for how long? I am unable to tell exactly. Mother soon missed us, but being very busy, she could not look for us until evening when she started out to look for us up after searching and calling in vain she decided to take the dogs to help find us with their aid we were soon located lying in the sweet corn dead drunk while the demijohn quite empty bottom side up stared at mother with a reproachful stare and the oyster can which had served up and took me to the house and let sally and jordan lie in nearby bearing mute witness against us Mother picked me up and took me to the house and let Sally and Jordan lie in. I think it's a wonderful, wonderful story. Um, and, and clearly from a man who's very talented at writing. 
um, which raises a, a very interesting question about the literary literacy of slaves and slavery and, and black literacy in the South, um, because there were there were laws against it. But obviously people found their their way around it. Here is a Nat Love was was actually educated by his father. So I love the, the story, James, and the, the concept of everyone having their own biography and their own story as a warning to historians not to not to generalise when thinking about the Wild West. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think that's one of the sort of main things. Whenever you try and categorise people, there's always so much sort of individual variation and, and differentiation by by class, by personality, by religion, you know, all sorts of factors that, that mean that the past is really is really detailed and nuanced. Before we go before we move on, I just want to to fill in a little sort of background on the history of, of black cowboys. There's a really quite extensive literature uh, that exists. Uh, and I just want to talk through a couple of a couple of things that were, were really useful. Um, William Lauren Katz's The Black West, you should look out for that. Uh, there's also a collection called Black Cowboys in the American West, On the Range, On the Stage, Behind the Badge, which is edited by Bruce uh, A. Glassrud and Michael N. Searles by University of Oklahoma Press. Uh, and... Um, Glassrud has also teamed up with Deborah Lyles uh, to edit a collection co called Before Emancipation, Black Cowboys and the Livestock Industry, another volume that's come out by the University of Oklahoma Press. If you're looking for something uh, shorter and a sort of shortcut to it, there's a brilliant piece that I read in the Smithsonian magazine um, by a scholar called Katie Nodjimbadam, uh, which is from 2017, and it's the lesser-known history of African-American cowboys. And what this takes is the idea that they're actually not that prevalent in popular narratives, in popular culture. But it is estimated that in the second half of the 19th century, some 5,000 to 8,000 cowboys were of African-American descent. And although this isn't the kind of thing that Hollywood portrays, this is something that you know that historians have 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 uncovered and as you were saying sam i think part of it is this move of of black slaves to the west not just to the north um but it also it also focuses on on texas and texas ever since the the Spanish had colonised that sort of area in the 1500s. It was an important part of the country for, for cattle. Uh, and cattle farming um, became uh, really important there economically and culturally in the late 1800s when you've got millions of cattle in that area. You've got white Americans then moving into Texas, um, uh, which is not part of the United States at, at this point, but they are... They they move there for cheap land, and of course they take along with them the slaves that they had at home, and they establish their settlements upon this frontier. They establish cotton farms and cattle ranches, and you've got an estimated twenty five percent of the Texas settler population that are slaves at this point. So Texas joins the Confederacy in eighteen sixty one, and then although the Civil War isn't fought in Texas, Texans in particular, white Texans go and fight alongside um, their Confederate comrades. And what this means is that the the, the land is left to uh, be looked after, often by the slaves. 
so they are there for you know looking after the land herding the cattle and also you need to think about the importance of cowboys during this period from from technology in a sense what you have is just huge open areas well two things huge open areas there's no barbed wire and so cow hands are important to round up the cattle and that's why cowboys cowboys are, are important there it's also pre the sort of real sort of acceleration of transportation by rail and so when um when uh, white texans want to sell their cattle uh, for meat or hides or whatever into the north you basically have these huge cattle drives and what this means is that they're often relying on slaves and then when the slaves are free they're relying on black labor to act as cowboys and during the civil war period a lot of the black slaves become very skilled uh, in ver in the various sort of activities that that cowboys are are, are involved in um, there's then a really interesting thing towards the end of the 19th century with the railroads becoming much more prominent as a mode of transportation of cattle so you don't need um, you don't need so many cowboys to do these drives what you effectively get is the demise of the cowboy and so there are far fewer cowboys needed and so what you find is that even people who were cowboys are having to go into into other kinds of trades nat love for example you know is one of these people um who has to leave the cattle industry he goes into the rodeos um for a while but also he's a pullman porter uh, so he actually works on the railroad. There's then some really interesting history about how the, how black cowboys were treated, not only by society but also within their groups of cow of cowboys. There's some interesting work about that they were actually discriminated against, that they were given, you know, typically given the sort of harder, more menial tasks. That sometimes when they went into into settlements, into towns, into saloons, they were segregated. Um, but there is also a lot of evidence in the literature that I've read that there was some degree of equality among cowboys and there's tales of them sharing blankets and when they're in gunfights, when they're defending themselves against against external threats, against attacks, you know, they are you know it doesn't matter whether they are you know black or white and they you know back each other up so there's a really interesting history to get into there so. planning for your next trip elevate your travel style with quince quince has all the jet setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway like european linen premium luggage options buttery soft italian leather bags and so much more and it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High-quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. 
Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365 day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. Yeah, I love that. And what you were mentioning is um, something that I'd also come across. Um, and you were saying talking about sharing a blanket, which I quite liked. Um, the ethics and morality of cowboys and the, the the code by which they lived is a very very strong theme in the film. Yes, it's a revenge, but to you know to uh, to have a revenge, you need to have a kind of an un, unspoken um, understanding of what is acceptable behaviour and what isn't acceptable behaviour. And the really interesting relationship here is between the cowboys' sense of justice, their belief in how they should actually behave and what the law wants and it's all very hazy there are lots of grey areas um nonetheless historians have well they're very certain that um the cowboys did exist with an unwritten code now it poses an interesting problem for historians when you're trying to find unwritten rules because you can't go and find the cowboy code as it was printed down and see what it actually was it's more of a, a process of reading around the book, reading diaries, reading descriptions of events, um, and and sort of finding out the rules by which people lived. Now, since historians have become aware that there was a unwritten code of conduct, there have been attempts to write it down. And this is just a few of them here, which I, I really liked. Um, Never steal another man's horse. A horse thief pays with his life. Defend yourself whenever necessary. Look out for your own. Remove your guns before sitting at the dining table. Never order anything weaker than whiskey, which I quite liked. Um, a cowboy doesn't talk much. He saves his breath for breathing. That's something that definitely doesn't apply for the film. There's a great deal of wonderful, wonderful narrative and talking. A cowboy always helps someone in need, even a stranger or an enemy. Be hospitable to strangers. Anyone who wanders in, including an enemy, is welcome at the table. The same was true for riders who joined cowboys on the range. Um, this is important. Respect the land and the environment. Um, and you really get a sense of that um, from um, from these people who... A lot of the action happens in towns, but a great deal of it happens out out of towns in the wilderness. And the relationship between man and horse is very clear indeed. Uh, honesty is absolute. Your word is your bond. Now, on top of this, there are all sorts of other ones which which come up in the film, um, particularly giving someone a chance. You have to give you have to fight fair. There's one bit where someone's shot in the back and it's it's appalling. Um, and you and I, I think it's sort of even within this. So they're breaking the law, but there are rules as to how they go about it and how they respect each other. Now, what's really interesting about this, I came across the most wonderful article um, and it basically it argued that there are there are two bodies of people in American historical culture who shared the same belief systems. One was cowboys and the other was the hippies of the late 1960s. And I thought, this is absolute nonsense. Until you start realising how the cowboys enjoyed freedom, they enjoyed in the, their environment, they enjoyed nature, wilderness, living by a code of honour. And there's a great deal of stuff that actually transposes very clearly between the cowboy life of the late 19th century and hippies of the 19th 1960s. There's a wonderful poem called The Cowboy and the Hippie. It was written by a chap called Chris Ledoux, 
who was a he was a uh, once he was a world champion um, bronco rider, and uh, he was also North America's foremost rodeo song composer. And he, he tells a wonderful story, uh, autobiographical, um, about. Um, it starts off making the point that cowboys and hippies never really get along, but then he has an experience that changes his mind. So he, he's down on his luck. He's on a lonely desert highway. A lot of these visuals so important in all cowboy songs. And um, this rodeo cowboy finds himself alongside a hippie, real groovy, long-haired kind of wastrel from the 1960s. He calls him a long-haired freak. Um, and they sat there chatting and then the poem carries on while the morning sun rose high when a hot desert breeze commenced to blow and the fragrance of the incense and six weeks without a bath finally drifted down and reached the cowboy's nose. Well, man, that really did it. He couldn't take no more and he tied his old bandana around his face. He said, you greasy, stinking hippie, you'd put a skunk to shame. Boy, you're a disgrace to the human race. Which sets up this really interesting kind of um, banter between the hippie and the cowboy. And the, the, the hippie gives him a few of his own jibes, pointing out how filthy the cowboy is. He's covered in cow, cow crap and horse crap and he smells of, smells of wildlife. And the cowboy takes offence to this. He says, I'm not going to take that from you. And he, he challenges the hippie to a fight. The hippie says, no, let's not do that, because fighting never settles anything anyway. And then they start to realise how much actually they've got in common. And instead of fighting, they end up on rather good terms. Um, there's a wonderful bit here. Where he says, we both love our freedom. We'll answer to no man. And you've heard it said to thine own self be true. We're just a couple of free spirits drifting across the land, doing exactly what we want to do said, now me, I got my things and you got yours and I don't see why we can't get along. They say the closest thing to freedom is living on the road in a country where freedom's almost gone. So it's a, it's a wonderful uh, poem celebrating the free wandering lifestyle, which applies equally to these two. And actually, if you you study this cold period of the late 1960s, you realise how important cowboy culture was to it. Um, the Birds, um, landmark album, The Sweetheart of the Rodeo. And James, you may know, um, well, there are so many John Denver classics, Flying Burrito Brothers, but a wonderful James Taylor song, 1970s, called Sweet Ooh, Baby James, yes. which is possibly one of my favourite songs. And he's, I've always thought it was weird. Um, and then he's writing about... Well, it's a proper kind of cowboy hippie theme set to a sort of a waltz. Um, and he's talking about hitchhiking the turnpike from Stockbridge to Boston. Um, it's about a young cowboy who lives on the range um, uh, and a horse and his cattle are his only companions. He works in the saddle. He sleeps in the canyons waiting for summer, his pastures to tame. And then it ends talking about having 10 miles behind me and 10,000 more to go. There's a song that they sing when they take to the highway, a song that they sing when they take to the sea, a song that they sing of their home in the sky. The singing works just fine for me. Um, so I'm going to end it there, but it's, um, it's a really important um, parallel here between culture in the 1960s, what's going on there. It's quite complex with the politics, but a, a, love, of, a love of life. Um, and if you don't know what I'm talking about, think about Easy Rider. 
Okay, so late 1960s is exactly this period. And um, you've got two hippie heroes. They're roaring on motorcycles. They go into the Wild West and they, they then spend the entire film enjoying rural living. Um, and enjoying celebrating the Western lifestyle. So I thought that was particularly surprising, James. But it also makes you realise how many of these themes and the code of honour, which is where I began, um, particularly is visible throughout a lot of American culture throughout history, not just cowboys. Oh, Sam, that's excellent. May I pick up that baton mm. of, of, of honour culture uh, that you talked about and relate it to medieval chivalry in Europe <laughs> because I, because one of the things that really struck me was the scene between the two gunslingers, the fast-roaring Jim Beckwith, who's a character who's constantly obsessed with his own ability, with, with his pistols, yeah. flashy trick work, spinning them round, uh, versus Cherokee Bill, and they stand up against each other. And what this harks back to is really the medieval and 16th and 17th century duel in Europe that was incredibly popular, a way of solving disputes between two people who had were at odds with each other. And actually, um, this gets imported into uh, the southern part of the United States in the second half of the 19th century from um, the south. So from Mexico, it comes it comes upwards. And it it actually is a way that, you know, particularly young teenagers, um, people who are, um, you know, who are battling with each other and, and tussling over rank and status um, and get into fights with each other. It is a custom that would have been used to uh, to sort out. Um, battles and disagreements that they'd had. Um, and I think the interesting thing is that this is actually a very sort of small phenomenon. You know, there, there, there are a, sort of a handful of recorded historical examples of this, but yet it becomes a huge motif, not only in Western films, but also in Western pulp fiction uh, that you get towards the end of the 19th century. Uh, you know, think about how many films that you've seen where you've had, you know, two gunfighters who square up to each other and they count on the on the count of three, you know, we'll we'll, you know, shoot each other. That very, very rarely, rarely happened. Um, and also all of these tricks that people people play um, is a is a, almost an entire invention uh, of the Western genre, because, you know, people who were really serious about killing people didn't mess around uh, with that kind of thing. There's a lovely there's a lovely quote from Wyatt Earp, one of the sort of most famous uh, sort of um, law enforcement cowboys uh, of his generation. And he says, the most important lesson I learned was that the winner of a gunplay usually was the one who took his time. The second was that if I hoped to live on the frontier, I would shun flashy trick shooting grandstand play as I would poison. In all, I don't know why I'm turning into an American accent here. Um, it, it is it's it, brilliant. It's in brilliant. all my life going. as a frontier peace officer, <laughs> I did not know a really proficient gunfighter who had anything but contempt for the gun fanner or the man who literally shot from the hip. And so there's been a whole industry of historical work done on myth busting these these um these myths that have been put into into westerns so the idea that you would wear your 
your holster, your belt really low on the hips that would allow you to, to sort of pull quick draw is absolute nonsense. And actually the evidence for those people who were quick drawers was that before you have the sort of metal lined holsters, um, you had very sort of soft leather. This is all about the history of leather, Sam. Very soft leather holsters, because as a cowboy, you'd be often in the saddle and you'd need something that was quite comfortable for wearing. If you were serious about quick drawing and didn't want the gun to get caught in the holster while you were pulling it out, you would actually have the holster tied to the leg. And the other thing is that this idea that, you know, the goodies uh, would basically injure or maim or shoot guns out of people's hands. I mean, this is absolute nonsense as well. Uh, people who were serious about shooting uh, would shoot to kill. And the idea that you could shoot a gun out of somebody's hand is absolute nonsense. And there's a, there's a, a sort of mythbuster in history who's done the experiment um, looking at that kind of at shooting of guns in people's hands. Uh, and of course, as you know, having done your your sort of series on weapons, if you shoot a gun, if you shoot a gun like that, the bullet is going to is going to sort of um, is going to come apart anyway. And then the gun would explode in somebody's hand. It's not something that's that's particularly clean. I think there are also there are also a few well-known examples of famous jewels. Uh, and one of them gets recorded in 1867 in Harper's Weekly. Uh, it's an article by George Ward Nichols. And it's in February, month of February of, 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 that, of that period. And it refers to a duel on the 21st of July, 1865. So a year and a half before in Springfield, Missouri between Wild Bill Hickok and Davis Tutt. And there's a big sort of quarrel over cards. They decide to have a, a gunfight. They walk out and 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 face up to each other. Um, and it's recounted in some detail. And I just want to share a little bit of that with you. So the main features of the story of the duel were told me by Captain Honesty, who was unprejudiced with a name like that. Of course he would be, if it is possible to find an unbiased mind in a town of 3,000 people after a fight has taken place. I will give the story in his words. They say Bill's wild. Now, he isn't any such thing. I've known him going on to ten year, and he's as civil a disposed person as you'll find hereabouts. But he won't be put upon. I'll tell you how it happened. But come into the office. There's a good many round here, as sides with Dave Tutt, the man that shot. But I tell you, twas a fair fight. Take some whiskey. <laughs> Just re re really sort of a really sort of intimate conversation he's having here. No, well, I will if you find blah 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 blah. Um, you see, uh, continued the captain. Um, Bill was up in his room playing seven up and forehand, or some of them pesky games. Uh, Bill refused to play with Tut, who was a professional gambler. You see, Bill was a scout on our side during the war, and Tut was a reb scout. Bill had killed Dave Tut's mate, and between one thing and another. There were unusual hard feeling atwixt them. And so he goes on that they, they fall out over cards, blah, 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 blah. And we'll just we'll just go down. They then they then have a, a sort of an altercation over the cards. Um, Bill walks away. He's then goaded by people to 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 sort of get into a fight. Next day, about noon, Bill went down to the square. He said that Dave Touch shouldn't pack that watch 
across the square unless dead men could walk. When Bill got onto the square, he found a crowd standing in the corner of the street by which he entered the square, which is from the south, you know. In this crowd, he saw a lot of Tut's friends. Some were cousins of his, just back from the Reb Army, and they jeered him, and boasting that Dave was going to pack that watch across the square as he promised. Then Bill saw Tut standing near the courthouse, which you remember is on the west side, so that the crowd were behind Bill. Just then, Tut, who was alone, started from the courthouse and walked out into the square, and Bill moved away from the crowd toward the west side of the square. About fifteen paces brought them opposite to each other, and about fifty yards apart. Tut then showed his pistol. Bill kept a sharp eye on him, and before Tut could pint it, uh, had his out. At that moment, you could have heard a pin drop in that square. Both Tut and Bill fired, but one discharge followed the other so quick that it's hard to say which went off first. Tut was a famous shot, but he missed this time. The ball from his pistol went over Bill's head. The instant Bill fired, without waiting to see if he had hit Tut, he wheeled on his heels and pointed his pistol at Tut's friends, who had already drawn their weapons. "'Aren't you satisfied, gentlemen?' cried Bill, as cool as an alligator. Put up your shooting irons, or there'll be more dead men here. And they put them up and said it were a fair fight. What became of Tut? I asked the captain, who had stopped at this point of his story and was very deliberately engaged in refilling his empty glass with whiskey. Oh, Dave, he was as plucky a feller as ever drew trigger, but Lord bless you, it was no use. Bill never shoots twice at the same man, and his ball went through Dave's heart. He stood stock still for a second or two, then raised his arm as if to fire again. Then he swayed a little, staggered three or four steps, and then fell dead. So there we are, Sam. That's a real live example of a, a gunfight and, and some degree of honour there. But uh, mainly, I imagine, as in the film, and not to, to spoil it, uh, honour was, um, was not respected and fighting, gunfighting, was pretty down and dirty. It was. I mean, we, there, there are so many uh, topics which we haven't covered here. I actually have got a list of them, James. We're gonna. I might inspire us to do more podcasts. But I justice. I wrote down fabrics, orphans, skin. We've just done skin, but the colour of skin and scarring, um, revenge, also very important, and the music. Um, I, I, I absolutely adored it, and it really made me think about the type of music they'd been. They would have actually been listening to at the time, um, and uh, so music linked with immigration and in the nineteenth century. I thought that was something we could look into, uh, and cross-dressing as well. I haven't mentioned that, um, but that actually plays quite an interesting part in the film, and it made me think of the wonderful novel *Days Without End* by Sebastian Barry, which is set in the Wild West, and it follows the adventures of Thomas McNulty. And there's some good cross-dressing in there uh, will make for a, a wonderful story as it does in this film as well so there we go um do go and watch the film we absolutely loved it do get in touch with us if you want to um suggest different ways we can think about the history of cowboys and we'll we'll have a think about that and see if we can fit them into future episodes but for now that's it thank you all so much for listening do follow me on social media i'm at dr sam willis and if you're interested in maritime and naval history please follow the mariners mirror podcast and if you want to follow me on social media i'm at james daybell the podcast is on at unexpected pod both on twitter uh, we're also on instagram and facebook so friend us there check out our website historiesoftheunexpected.com 
And also, if you want to be a patron of Histories of the Unexpected, head over to Patreon, where we have an account. But in the meantime, go out and watch The Harder They Fall, which is currently in select cinemas and on Netflix from the 3rd of November. That's it all for now, guys. Bye-bye then. Cheerio. Bye. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50 luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.